You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. You know, mobile phone networks must be among the technological marvels of our age. Yes, we might complain from time to time about dropped calls, but let's be honest. The ability to browse, stream, navigate and even shop from our phones, is nothing short of remarkable. And there's more to come in the form of 5G networks, which promise to open up whole new sets of applications. But who makes money from this abundance of innovation and investment? The answer, as we'll hear, is complicated. Suffice to say that the winner is not always the telco to whom you pay your monthly bill. To discuss the economics of this fascinating industry, I sat down in London with Philip Natterman and Ferry Greipink, two McKinsey partners who work extensively with clients across the telecom sector. So Philip and Ferry, thanks for being here and welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Happy to be here. So I think from a consumer perspective, clearly we're in a bit of a golden age for mobile. We're streaming, we're navigating, we're doing a lot of things from our cell phones we just couldn't do before. But just step back, if you don't mind, Philip, give us a sense of the overall, the growth of the industry. How fast is is data consumption over mobile growing? It is growing enormously. If you look at some of the numbers in Europe, uh, data consumption has grown, you know, sixfold uh, between 2010 and 2017. I think it's actually growing even faster. And if you look at different forecasts, right, a key reason for that is the ubiquitous availability of 4G, both handsets and networks, the new services, like you mentioned, of streaming um, applications, etc. Telcos cover more people than electricity today. So it is a truly ubiquitous product. Um, and the forecasts really are that it will only continue to grow. I think depending on whose numbers you believe, you know, something like north of 75% of all the traffic, mobile traffic today is already video. That is also the fastest growing amount, both in terms of how much video gets uploaded to the YouTubes and so on of the world on a daily basis, uh, but also on consumption. And so my expectation is that uh, the growth we have seen will only accelerate over the next three to five years. If you look at growth, the availability of very cheap devices in many, many markets, like, you know, I've worked a lot in Africa, where you suddenly have phones which are 52 or even $20 which enables many, many people to have uh, phones. And you create so many interesting applications on top of it. So the value generated by mobile phones for uh, society and for people in their own right is so big that we're really living in a golden age of these opportunities. And the better the network becomes, the more it's feasible. So that makes it also more exciting. With a 2G phone, you can do SMS, but now suddenly you can do taxi booking, you can manage a bank account. You can even look at your crop. Is my crop doing well? Can I get advice? You get some medical advice. So the value of cheap smartphones in emerging markets is phenomenal. And the value created for the individual and for society is tremendous. From a company perspective and from an industry perspective, the interesting question is who's capturing the value, right? So just give us a sense of where's the value flowing today? I think it depends is the answer. Um, so as Ferry mentioned earlier, there is unbelievable growth in the pure telco industry still. Right. on a regional level. So if you look at free cash flow as a, as a sort of proxy for that, it increased um, by about 
100 percent in in north america between sort of 2007 and 2017 right it's similar rates in korea and in japan for example so i think there, there's big now there are some markets like europe which are actually shrinking that's probably due mostly to to competitive or market structure than anything else but that's only part of you know both what i as a consumer spend and you as a consumer spend which is your monthly phone bill uh, I think the second bit, which is, you know, if you look at the devices, particularly at the high end in the mature markets, I mean, you know, some phones cost north of $1,000 at this point. Uh, so there has been a huge amount of value creation and value shift towards the technology players uh, that create these devices. And the third pool, which is probably the biggest opportunity at this point, is the services and applications on top of that, be that the streaming, be that the you know, entertaining, be or, or any other types of services, which require both the ubiquitous networks and require the smartphones, be they low-end or high-end. I think that's really the three different types of players in the industry that you know, are seeing quite different value flows and quite different trajectories at this point. So telcos have done well. Europe aside, but maybe not quite as well as some of the device manufacturers, naming no names, and some of the tech companies as well. They've probably done even better out of out of 4G in this growth. So if you look at, if you take a step back, what Philip described, these three buckets of, of value, you see that the equipment manufacturers who deliver the network, they've consolidated. There were, when I graduated, there were 15 or something, we now have four or five left. And if you look at the device manufacturers, there may be five or six globally, but only one or two make money. But they're global industries. The telcos are largely a local industry, so they compete locally. And they've done relatively well in their local markets. But once they start to compete on the global scale, for example, for services, it becomes more difficult. And that triggered a bit of an identity crisis because before they did everything from calling to SMS and they provide a lot of tech services and connectivity. And now suddenly they're boxed into this connectivity area. So... If you try to compete on to, with global players without the R&D, without uh, the developers, uh, and without the 10-year horizon profitability, it's very difficult. So therefore, by far and large, a lot of telcos outside of Europe done really well, but not as well as the big global services providers and internet companies. And there's a, you know, there's a real, real realization is, what is my business and how can I be successful in this game? It's funny from a layperson's perspective to think of, of mobile operators almost like utilities because the technology is pretty amazing technology is, is is fascinating and the fact indeed i was in myanmar and you can literally make a call uh, facetime with your your parents in, in in the netherlands it's just phenomenal at the same time of course only a small part of that is the telco you've got the equipment manufacturing the r d chipset people um, which all need to make it happen so they are an orchestrator of the chain more than an innovator in the chain now, that orchestration is really important because you need to run base stations, you need to fuel them, you need to make sure they work. That is not easy business, but at the same time, they're a important, but not the total value chain. I, I think absolutely right about the because if you think about it, I buy as a telco all the equipment, I buy the phones, etc. right? It has all been, thanks to GSMA and others, been standardized. So actually, if you're a telco, it's also quite hard to really differentiate yourself right because we can all buy the same phones we can all buy the same equipment now yes some are larger so you have more money you can build a better network but it's 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 very different than you know most other industries where i actually run my own r&d so to speak because telcos have outsourced this and i think that's one of the key issues where 
when you do have a slightly less favorable industry structure, like we have in Europe, for example, that it's very, very hard for the players to overcome that. Um, and so I think that's one of the things which has, you know, if you think back at the last 20 years, changed quite significantly, right? I remember there were players who tried to have their own smartphones, who tried to have their own sort of early versions of a world garden. We all remember Entity Docomo's examples 15 years ago or so. That has all disappeared. So all of these services are now being provided by third parties. And therefore, it's ubiquitous, and that's the value it creates, but it's no longer differentiating. Just double-click on the industry structure point. By that, basically, we mean how many players are competing for market share in, in any given um, market? It is that and more. So, yes, of course. If you, if you look at a market like the U.S., where I have you know, four players or four scale players, in effect, in mobile, for example, maybe even going down now to three, and you compare it to a market like the UK, which is, you know, from a population, what, a quarter, a fifth of that. But again, I have four players. Now, I have a smaller landmass that I need to cover with my cells. But in terms of, you know, I lack scale economies. And I think Europe, as Ferry mentioned earlier, right, is particularly stuck by this. I need a local operating license. Well, Europe has, what, 26, 27 countries. Roughly, it's the size of the U.S. in aggregate, but I have 26 to 27 times as many local operators as the U.S. has. That, by definition, has to put us at a scale disadvantage. If you look at, and I work with a lot of regulators in Asia and Africa, to basically look at your regulatory regime, and you know, if you take the two opposite perspectives, there's a perspective around how do I protect the consumer? Because you need the local operating license, so there's some consumer protection needed. At the same time, you also invest, you want to make sure there is investment and there's basically good infrastructure. And it's a balancing act. And I think by far and by large, the European Union did a pretty good job in making sure that the consumers have low cost for connectivity. Now we're on the verge of a large rollout of new infrastructure like 5G. Then the question is a bit, is there enough money and is there enough value in the pool for operators to roll out faster? And I think getting that balance right is difficult uh, between this consumer protection and investment protection. And at different times and in different markets, governments have played differently, and therefore you see different outcomes. So that's a really nice segue into 5G. Uh, Ferry, for a non-specialist uh, like me, what is, what is 5G? When is it coming and what's it going to enable? So 5G is just the next evolution of the mobile network. We started out with 2G, then 3G, 4G, so now we get 5G. 5G does three big things. One is it enables much faster speed. So we're talking about gigabytes a second, uh, which you can actually deliver. The second is it cuts down latency, so it's go faster. So basically, between setting up the connection and receiving something, things go faster. And that's quite important for uh, if you want to steer a robot, that robot reacts very quickly in what you do. And a third one is it enables a lot of um, IoT use cases, much lower power. Um, so those are the three big things 5G is enabling. Um, what we see is that we predicted it will be after 2020, but for now we see many players already launching commercially in 2019. And of course in the US there's a lot of very advanced trials going on already on uh, this year. I was going to say I see quite a lot of headlines that mention 5G as if it's literally just going to hit me as a consumer. Well, we expect handsets to be available end of 2019. So in the end, you will be able to buy a handset end of 2019. Maybe not the big brand one, but, but smaller brands will come out with that. Now, at the same time, as a consumer, will you notice faster speed on your phone? Most likely not. Do you 
see a lot of the latency benefits for yourself. No, not. So what 5G is looking for different use cases, things like Industry 4.0, we talk about uh, uh, um, um, cars, we talk about other, other applications. And in that respect, 5G resembles a lot like 3G. When the operators in Europe were rolling out 3G in 2003 and 2004, they built a beautiful, shiny network, which could do a lot of high-speed data. And nobody had any idea what to do with it at that point of time. And it took them up till 2007, when the iPhone came, to realize that uh, that is the application. Smartphone is the thing. It's not going to be wireless broadband. It's really that is a use case. So what we see now is you're rolling out a network with a much better capability. And the question is, who's going to innovate on that capability to really uh, offset demand? And we see a lot of trials in factories. I was in a refinery to look at how robots can connect faster. But the big thing, the iPhone moment hasn't happened for 5G yet. The game changer, will, you know, if it comes, will come from you know, Internet of Things applications, Industry 4.0 applications. How do I actually you know, connect a car? Take that as an example. Right? Clearly, you have the car manufacturers, you have the you know, existing map, map producers and all these things, the OEMs, you know, the service providers. They clearly have a lot of, will create a lot of the use cases. They you know, largely will retain the information, so take your car, right, in terms of predictive maintenance. Um, you know, you drive a whatever, there's a Fiat, a BMW, uh, you know, it is the car manufacturer that will own a lot of this. Now, clearly, I will use a mobile operator's network to transmit that. If I want to do particularly autonomous vehicles, I need the low latency. To get to this Eureka moment will very, I believe, it will be very important for the operators to actually collaborate with these different industry or these different vertical players, be that, you know, automotive, be that robotics, be that logistics, be that financial services. Now, I think if you're honest, the one thing the telco industry has not been particularly good at is to actually effectively collaborate with third parties. We're very good in, within the industry in terms of finding standards and, you know, that's very impressive. But if you're really honest, how well have we worked together with financial service? How well have we worked together with, you know, the medical device industry, the automotive industry, not that well. But that's where the value will come from. And so I think one of the things that the operators really need to start thinking about is how do we avoid the mistakes of the past in order to enable the industry to capture its fair share of the value that will undoubtedly be created by 5G. Yes, that's the big takeaway for me. And as I started researching this, I, I just, as a layperson, hadn't realized to what extent the industry had failed. Maybe failed is too strong a word. Failed to capture a lot of the value created out of 3G and 4G. And like that's got to be the really interesting strategic question for, for telcos now. We know there's going to be a lot of value created through 5G. We don't know exactly what yet, but there's going to be stuff created. There's going to be value created out of 5G. And how do you have a real seat at the table how do you partner? What are the business models? What are the alliances, the ecosystems to actually capture value? Is that like a fair summation? MGI, our, our global think tank, thinks it's about 40, 11 trillion of value created by IoT. Now, unclear if that's going to be captured by, by the industry or it's going to be consumer surplus, but it's a large number to work at. When we looked at this for a lot of our clients, around 10 to 30% of that requires advanced network capabilities things like low latency, very high reliability, very high speeds. 
which gives the telco some right to play because they bring that capability sometimes earlier and, and more integrated than other players. At the same time, a right to play is not the same as a right to win. And the right to win, to Philip's point, means that you need to understand the vertical. You need to be able to partner with device manufacturers, with people who operate refineries, who understand pumps, who build the solution. So the question is a little bit, as a regional player or a local player, how do you inject yourself in that ecosystem uh, to, catch, to generate value? Now, um, some local use cases like smart cities, healthcare-related stuff, are easier for telcos to capture because there's a local regulatory aspect. So they need to be reinvented at a local market scale. While things like Industry 4.0 will be more difficult because some of that will be more global. And of course, the other thing about 5G, like any of these technology transitions, is the cost of the build-out of the, the new network. So, and I know 5G has some particular wrinkles in it, like you need a denser towers uh, to make it work. So, Philip, what's it going to cost? Who's going to come up with the money? And are they going to make a return? I think, yes, it's absolutely right that especially for the higher frequency um, bands, the, the density of the network is significantly higher, probably an order of magnitude higher than it was for 4G or 3G, particularly in urban areas. So literally more towers per square kilometer in these areas. Yeah, for the high frequency, which is really what gives you the high capacity, particularly in the urban areas, as Ferry mentioned earlier, you know, 4G is starting to run in some urban areas out of out of capacity. And a, and a big part of the of the business case really is for many operators is the you know, increased capacity you get for your networks. Forget about the IoT stuff, but that's the very first stuff. The equipment prices are already starting to come down. The the, the key challenge really is the what I would call the civil engineering cost for each of the new cell sites. So it will not necessarily be a, you know, a massive big tower, but a micro site. But you still need to build the site, have the site, get planning permission for the site, have you know probably fiber backhaul. Because remember, you know the whole idea is I have much higher capacity in my in my cells. Well, I need to somehow bring it back to my core network. Uh, so actually, you know, players who have a existing fiber network will actually have a great advantage relative to other players. Part two is in a number of markets, you are actually not allowed to build incremental cell sites in urban areas, either because of, um, you know, the radio emissions constraints or because of building constraints, etc. So there are real questions about, you know, especially I think in, in, in European metropolitan areas, whether or not it will actually be physically feasible under the current regulatory regime to build the networks, the density of the networks that you would really need for 5G to work. Now, what we're starting to see already is different players thinking about network sharing. So pooling their networks together, either what we call the passive or the sort of infrastructure part or the active part. And that will very likely continue because and it's not, it is clearly a cost element, but it is also a sheer, I need access to a larger number of sites. You have some sites, I have some sites. If you combine them, gets us both a long way down the road. So Philip, just give us a sense. You said orders of magnitude. How many you know, base stations are we going to need in an urban area? Give us a sense of what that means in practice. So, I mean, it, it really depends, obviously, on, on the topography. But if you look today, you typically have, you know, in, in urban areas, somewhere between 30 and 45 sites per square kilometer. And these are towers today? These are towers or smaller cell sites that you see on the side of buildings, exactly. 
On 5G, again, you know, it depends on the take up, it depends how much spectrum you got as, a, as an operator, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, you know, we could talk an order of magnitude. So in the hundreds per square kilometer of cell site. So what that means is, you know, street furniture on lampposts, you know, one of the operators in Europe uh, actually developed a method, I think, to put a cell in the underside of a manhole cover. So this gives you just a sense of the, A, the, the sheer number of cell sites I will need in, in big urban areas, but also in the length to which operators are being forced to go already to think about, well, where do I actually attach this cell site, you know, be that in street furniture, be that elsewhere, uh, to actually be able to place hundreds potentially of cells in a, in a single square kilometer. And when you talk about the civil engineering challenge, that's what we're talking about. It's not like building a big civil engineering bridge or something, but the complexity of rolling out 5G, particularly in urban areas, is significant. Yes, it's the distributed nature of it uh, within a, you know, most European cities or North American or Asian cities were not built for 5G, right? I mean, they were built for very different purposes. Um, so, yes, I, I think it will be a huge, huge challenge. And I think you might very easily see a greater bifurcation of operators. So if I'm a, you know, a well-financed operator, maybe even the incumbent, I have a fixed infrastructure in place, that's one thing. If I'm a relatively small mobile-only player with, you know, significant less resources, this challenge becomes significantly more daunting. So it, we could very well see that 5G might lead to, you know, some changes in industry structure. And this is why you said it may not make sense to have multiple networks. It may make sense just to have a single network, just like you have single water pipes and single electricity cables, because the civil engineering challenge becomes such that you just need a, a single layer of these base stations. One of the analysts always jokes that telcos are specialized real estate companies, because frankly, the, the rent you need to pay for all these hundreds of towers is pretty high, and, and it's, it's like being a real estate developer. Now, what you see in 5G, there are certain regulators we're willing to give out licenses for regions, so you get a neutral host. So instead of you know five players try to cover this uh, this area, only one um, covers it, and people roam on it. Now it's very controversial in the industry because how do you how do you create enough competition? How do you not create a certain rent extraction? So, uh, but in the licensing regime of five G, certain markets are are going that way. And then you you really get to a model which begins to look more like a utility. Don't you? And, and this is one of the issues for the, the industry. You only have one set of water pipes, and there's a utility, basically. And there are certain uh, regulatory regimes that allow a degree of competition. You can choose your electricity provider, you know, for example, in many places, but they're all going across a single you know, transmission network. Doesn't the industry begin again to look more like a utility? I think regulators would like to prevent that happening, because what we've seen in the industry, both in fixed um, in places where you had cable and fixed, you saw much more innovation. People were much more incentivized, uh, fixed players to upgrade their network to VDSL, to fiber, and cables were running faster to, to provide upgrades to DOCSIS. So a situation of one network, I think, would be counterproductive towards innovation and rolling out things fast. Now, at the same time, do you want to have five base stations crammed in historic city centers in Europe? No. So there's my, most likely an optimum, which is somewhere between two and four. 
uh, depending on the scale of the economy, depending on the size. Okay, so different solutions for for different geographic areas, and there are good reasons for competition. There are good competition reasons why we might not want to see the industry develop into too much of a sort of utility model. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think to be honest, if you look at again, right, this is primarily a European issue. As you talked about before, um, it's actually interesting if you compare prices of telcos. So what does the average consumer pay? Let's call that as a price. Um, and you look at, at over 10 years, telcos this has come down, where we use way, way, way more data today than we ever did before. Actually, all other utilities have increased their prices. While if anything, you know, people tend to use less electricity today because you become more energy efficient, probably use about as much water as you did and so on. So I'm actually not sure that the telcos would necessarily mind being treated like utilities if you look at that in terms of being able to raise prices, you know, to have a protected, you know, regulatory protected environment. So, um, you know, utility might be a bit of a dirty word, but in reality, it may not be such a no, bad thing. No, that's right. I mean, a good regulator would make sure they could at least earn their cost of capital, which in Europe currently, I, I gather, is is not the case if you take the industry to aggregate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we've looked at this uh, across a range of European countries. Now, clearly, there will always be players that do. But as an industry, across the sort of core seven large European markets, the industry not only does not meet its cost of capital, the return on capital is lower than its cost of capital, uh, which, you know, pure economic terms is value destructive um, uh, and actually has been for the last three or four years. So, you know, it kind of bumps up and down. But it hasn't. And I think that is actually a real concern for the industry and goes back to a point we discussed earlier, which is in Europe, the regulars have been very good at lowering end consumer prices. That obviously has had an impact on the revenue, that has had an impact on the returns that these players have had. The flip side of this is if my cost of capital is higher than the return I generate, that will amongst you know, rational economic players, will have an impact in terms of reducing the investments I will make. And I think there is a real risk that Europe might fall behind. I think we can claim that, you know, it definitely was leading in 2G, no question about that, maybe even early 3G. But if you look at, you know, network density, if you look at the speed of 5G rollout, you know, you could claim that certain markets in Asia, for example, maybe even the US, are definitely, you know, on par, if not ahead of Europe. And I think one of the key reasons for that is the different economic climate. And I think that is one of the concerns I would have, at least, that, you know, if this continues and the industry continues to fail to generate a return that at least meets its cost of capital, forget about exceeding it, that we might see slower investments. We might see, you know, sort of headline rollouts of, 5G in London, Paris, or Milan, that's all great, but you know, who will actually have it? How much will it be available, et cetera, at what cost relative to some of the other markets out there? And Philip, this is not just a European phenomenon. If you look at what happened in India, uh, they're also, you know, with one hand, great for the consumers because data prices has gone down, massive adoption, but at the same time, the industry is starved of profits. And the question is, what would that mean for a lot going forward? There's other marks like Indonesia, which are, are also similar, very competitive. And the question is, are the, you know, a lot of the players that are making losses at the moment. Um, so the question is a bit, will that 
generate enough uh, cash to basically keep on innovating and keep on building out new infrastructure. So as we're recording this, uh, everybody's preparing for Mobile World Congress uh, at the end of February in Europe, in Barcelona. So as you mentioned, Philip, the industry in Europe faces particular challenges around industry structure and profitability. What needs to, to change? How can that be fixed? And how do we make sure that Europe actually doesn't fall behind, doesn't end up with a tech deficit in this area? European regulars have been very good at keeping end customer prices low. They have been less good at creating an environment where you know, the return on capital is sufficient to cover the cost of capital. So what that means, I think, is we need to start thinking about how do we either allow more in-market consolidation, because we clearly see that the number of players has a very clear inverse correlation to profitability. Um, European operators are significantly less profitable than their North American, their Korean, or their Japanese counterparts. And consolidation in practical terms means M&A. Means M&A. Um, or alternatively, you allow for you know, moving away from you know, what is a sort of accident of history, these you know, relatively small countries in Europe, each having you know, its own licensing requirements. Um, and actually saying, you know, I actually allow you to run a network across the whole Benelux region, for example, right? Or uh, the Dach region or whatever it is, so that, you know, you help operators get more economies, economies of scale. Economies scale. Because obviously, the, the, you know, a, a large market is able to, you know, support a larger number of competitors than a small market. Uh, so I think there's clearly something around that. And I think the commission and the regulars really need to think about what is the long-term, our long-term vision. Because yes, of course, I can keep continuing to just focus on low-end customer pricing, but that will have, by default, it may not have it now. Yes, over the long term. Over the long term. So I think that's, that's one. I think there's a second element, which is, if you look at you know, what we talked about before, the other players, the, the, the newer players in the value chain that have captured most of the value. So particularly on the, call it the OTT, the service providers that sit on top of the telcos. OTT is over the top, uh, but you know this is really the Netflixes, the Googles, the, all your applications that you run. I mean, you, know, you don't actually spend, very few people still talk on their phone much. It's, it's mostly all the applications, anything you do. If I look at those, they're almost exclusively North American, right? And at the same time, you have, which is less sort of visible to us, maybe here, but you know, you have a sort of similar ecosystem being created in China. Um, now, the question is, what are the things we can do in Europe, and implication we should do, to actually ensure that we have a equally rich pipeline of, of these innovative companies. Because my thought actually is, right, as we look at the value migration, as more and more of the value will migrate to the application, and the simple reason for why it will do, the number of applications you can provide is limitless. The number of networks I can have is by definition limited. This goes over there from taxation to risk capital to, you know, setting up the environments where we can actually not just grow startups. And obviously anybody goes to MWC sees a huge number of very small startups, but actually create tech companies that can rival, can play on the same 
level as the big players in either the US or in China. And I actually think that's almost the, the bigger concern in all of this. Philip, may I build, build on the point you're making, but take a slightly different lens to this. And I think there's three other elements we need to consider as Europe, as Europe tocos. I think number one is the consumer. I think in a transition from us being the integrated service provider to us now being more connectivity providers, we lost the consumer. So if you currently would ask a consumer, what do you rather deal with? Do I give my information to a one of the service providers like Google, Facebook? They'll rather do it to them than to us. So one element we need to do as an operator, if we want to stay relevant and we want to play in the application space, is to win back the minds and the heart of the consumer. Secondly, if you look at you know, where we are in the development of, inter of, of connectivity and applications is we're moving from um, virtualized goods like social networks and content into the hard physical space with IoT. And there, of course, Europe has a lot of advantages. We know how to run industries. Uh, uh, we're, we're a manufacturing hub like in Germany. We do leather goods. So once applications hit from the virtual space to the physical space, the question is, do we have an advantage of, of, in Europe? And the third thing is... Um, we also have a little bit of an advantage given the fact that we don't have one of the large players here. Things like GDPR, privacy. How are we going to create these kind of new platforms which are much more focused to what consumers want now? I think we saw all the problems uh, with decentralized platforms. Given that we have none of them in Europe, we also have the opportunity to win one. So I think there are some positives to look at where we can build on. But it requires the industry to make real bets and to go after one thing, not 100 things at the same time, and really focus. Because if we try, as every individual nation, and every individual operator, to go after the same thing, we will fail. So I think we're out of time for today. Uh, but Philip and Ferry, thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about our work in the telecom sector and beyond, please visit mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.